This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock, back again for 2020. It was no surprise that the Sussexes' sudden decision in the new year to retreat from royalty altogether fired up the hyperactive British media, especially as they cited the pestering of the press as a major reason why. But half a world away, our media were in a frenzy over it too. They're actually quitting Britain as well. Yeah, they certainly are, Tom. This, as they say, is the rift that keeps on giving. Also, Media Watch has a new team member this year, producer Hayden Donnell. And in Hayden's maiden report, he looks at how the Herald is taking on Facebook followers trolling a visiting plus-size pop star, and he asks the paper's social media leader if that's a sign of things to come. Probably isn't my place to, to sort of stand here and tell Facebook what they need to do, but New Zealand media as a collective does have an opportunity to stand up and say that this isn't good enough. But before all that, how the seasonal Christmas New Year news drought left our media desperate for stories and talking points, often scraping social media for content. OK, this is what I think of 2019. Good riddance. You have been an absolute nightmare. I'm glad to see the back of you. So anyway, Happy New Year, everyone. That was actor and Kiwi celebrity Robbie Magasiva farewelling 2019 with a middle finger on New Year's Eve in a video for his Instagram followers. And that was then embedded in an online New Zealand Herald news story for New Year, whose headline called it expletive ridden, but it was only really sparingly sweary in truth. Now, many other people might have posted similar stuff online at that time and not made the news, but his blurt did because his brother, actor Pua Magasiva, had died by suspected suicide in mid-2019. And later, his widow Liz had told the Herald she suffered abuse during their relationship and that he'd even been convicted of assaulting her. And that's serious stuff, obviously, but none of it really made his brother's downbeat New Year social media message truly newsworthy. The following year, the day started badly for someone who's banned from all social media platforms these days, InfoWars conspiracy theorist and misinformation professional Alex Jones. He was ordered to pay a six-figure sum to a man whose son was killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook school shooting in the US for saying things like this. My gut tells me the White House, people controlling the government were involved in this. So don't ever think the globalists that have hijacked this country wouldn't stage something like this. They kill little kids. All day, every day. And it's not our government, it's the globalist. I mean, they're doing it, they're doing it, they're staging it. This is the first of several potentially crippling lawsuits that Alex Jones faces for repeatedly claiming the massacre was a state-sponsored hoax starring so-called crisis actors. Well, he's now currently begging online subscribers for more money to carry on his media work. And two days later, so was another right-wing provocateur, Stefan Molyneux, one of a pair who sparked a free speech frenzy on a speaking tour here last year and who now realises he's become unemployable. There is no place for me to go from here. This is where I, we, I believe, must take our stand. What am I going to go and get a job back in the corporate world? <laughs> one, one search and it would be functionally impossible. And while the likes of Jones and Molyneux are enemies of the mainstream news media, media freedom advocate and law professor Lawrence Lessig announced last week he's suing the New York Times for what he claims is an online headline that was fast and loose about him. A Harvard law professor has filed a lawsuit against the New York Times accusing the paper of, quote, clickbait defamation, according to Lawrence Lessig, reporting falsely suggested he once approved of accepting donations from Jeffrey Epstein. Professor Lessig joins us now via Skype. You know, just like people say that 
Facebook should not be publishing false ads in their political advertising. And at least if you notify them that their ads are lies, they ought to take it down. I think the same should apply to the New York Times. Right. And so I think in the internet age, we need a new standard or we need the standard of defamation law applied to this technology. Good luck with that, Professor Lessig. Now, while he slapped down the New York Times in a quest for truth, Pope Francis went viral in the new year for slapping the hand of a female follower who grabbed him during a public walkabout, just a day after the Pope spoke out about the scourge of domestic violence. And the Herald, like many other media, posted the viral video of that, and host Tim Donahue at sister station News Talk ZB broke it down like a video referee. And at the 19-second mark, this is where she shoots out her left hand and yanks his arm and pulls him back in and he slaps her hand down out of his because he first he tries to pull it away, but she's holding onto his hand so tightly. Now, remember, he's trying to get away. And during the pontiff's next walkabout just a week later, he reportedly told a nun in the crowd not to bite him before he kissed her. And he won praise for that in many media stories for displaying a sense of humour. But there was no sign of that on the 4th of January, though, when former Music Press Bible NME, which is now only an online outfit, reported this shock news. Meatloaf denies climate change claims Greta Thunberg has been brainwashed. But the shock in that for many readers was why anyone would make a story out of the climate-related reckons of the bat-out-of-hell heavyweight in the first place. But Meatloaf was not the only bloke of a certain age lately fretting about facts fed to school-age kids about the climate. All right, a lot of uptake for my new word that we're going to get widely used in New Zealand, and indeed we might get Obama to use this by the end of the year, the word doomers, to describe those who are hysterical about climate change and believe the world is going to end. Doomers. And it's a nice play off boomers, isn't it? Doomers. This says, Sean, I used doomer in a text to a host at the opposition. He loved it. I'm spreading the word. Steve. Sean Plunkett's Doomers label has yet to trend widely so far or be picked up by former President Obama in spite of Steve's best efforts there and Sean Plunkett's. Um, uh, OK, Doomer. I've got to say OK, Doomer at some stage. I might use that in my, um, in my interview that's coming up. Well, that interview on the 14th of January was with Green co-leader James Shaw, the Minister for Climate Change. And in it, Sean Plunkett zeroed in on new resources for teaching that topic in schools. Sean Plunkett was concerned that this amounted to indoctrination. But James Shaw told him the resources are based on the science, so you can dispute that all you like. Which is pretty much what Sean Plunkett then went on to do. But my point is, ah, is that you can find anything on the why did you make the, the comparison? Because uh, what I'm saying is you can find anything on the internet to reinforce your pre-existing beliefs if you look hard enough. OK, well, I don't have any pre-existing beliefs on this, and you'd like to think our school children don't either, but clearly you do, politically, right, have a pre-existing belief. I mean, it's the basis of largely of the Green Party's political position. I have not found a scientist yet who does not think that climate change isn't happening due to human activity. Sean Plunkett's colleagues at News Hub billed that interview as a fiery clash, though in fact there were hardly any raised voices at all during that 22-minute encounter, which ended pretty amicably. Hey, thank you very much indeed for joining us and talking it through. I know you've got a, a big year ahead of you, and this is going to be one of the issues that is very much on the table. I'm glad you got a nice break at Ahopi Beach, um, and we'll catch up soon. Thanks, pal. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Sean Plunkett then riled a critical cricketer who happened to be listening. Uh, Jimmy Neeson, he said on Twitter, 
that he wanted to take his hat off to Shaw for his calmness during the interview with Magic Talk's Sean Plunkett. Online, NewsHub called that a bitter Twitter feud between the pair, though mostly it was one-way traffic. Sean Plunkett criticised Jimmy Neesham for burning up carbon flying to cricket matches around the world, though climate-conscious cricketers, like everyone else of course, do have to live in the world as it is. And media hosts creating climate controversies to boost engagement is a part of the world as it is these days, it seems. But that climate curriculum controversy did strike a chord, though, with Magic Talk caller Johnny, who agreed that all this was too Orwellian sounding for his tastes. And, and Orwell and, and uh, the unwords, and uh, yeah, they're spending too much money on books like Selling His Two Mummies and yeah. Not Enough on Rugby Balls. Um, <laughs> And any political party that puts more rugby balls and less lesbian literature in the school curriculum might just get Johnny's vote in the 2020 election. That climate change teaching topic was a gift to talkback hosts begging for talking points. At times, they were desperate for them over the holidays. 0800 80 10 80. If you have a holiday entry, it doesn't have to have happened this holidays, could be any holidays in memory. Tim Wilson on News Talk ZB in the new year, prompted by a colleague in management there who had a holiday mishap. Have you done yourself a malfeasance while you've been on holiday? <laughs> it could be taking group photographs. It could be. Maybe you got a bit close to the Barbie. Holiday injuries. Now, at first, Tim Wilson's appeals just drew voices of reason, like this guy. If you're going to be running a barbecue, you look after that. If you're going to take photos, you certainly don't do things around a barbecue or while you're driving or anything else like that, you know what I mean? Quite right too. But Tim Wilson's persistence eventually paid off when Terry called in. Just. Now, what do you think about holiday injuries? Oh. Oh, sorry, Terry, did we got you back? I got bitten by a dog on Christmas Day. Oh. And then caller Jenny took it up a notch with a yarn about being hospitalised by a goldfish. And I... So Mildred, a goldfish, stayed in the bowl. I, I came to... It was only, like, knocked out, like, five seconds. It yeah. wasn't, you know, that bad. Um, I, I, I remember seeing the goldfish thinking, oh, my gosh, you're OK, because I love animals and fish, you know. <laughs> and here she is swimming around, water everywhere and a few pebbles... Other topics filling the news and talkback void over the break. Too many tourists. Who should sponsor the All Blacks next? Whether hashtag turn Ardern was really a thing. A woman being kicked out of a Qantas lounge in Australia for wearing her gym gear. And, well, almost anything else that went viral on social media. And nothing in that vein was too tacky to be turned down as news, it seems. Last weekend, for example, the Herald posted a cell phone video reportedly filmed on a train to Trentham on Wellington Cup Day under this headline. Watch. Lewd act on Wellington train caught on camera. But having urged us all to watch what it called mature content, the Herald didn't even properly report what it described as a young woman demonstrating a unique skill on the train. Footage uploaded to Facebook shows the woman in a dress shuffling along the train carriage as the crowd cheers her on. She then drops a coin into a plastic cup on the floor using a rather unusual body part to carry money. And if the Herald thinks that body part was really unusual, well, we have news for the Herald. The Herald reported that some online responders thought all that was hilarious, some thought it was disgusting, and one wanted to acquire the coin. And that particular story, just for the record, was not part of the Herald's premium content offering. Now, back in mid-January, former journalist-turned-lawyer Linda Clark took to Twitter with this desperate plea. 
Serious journos, please come back to work. Another day of summer news and I'll gnaw my own leg off with boredom. And now that the year is underway properly, let's hope for more real news from our news media and less non-news content scraped from social media, like Robbie Magasiva's New Year message on Instagram. Yeah. Have a great 2020. New Year's resolution. They don't exist. I know. You watch. Tomorrow, I'm going to be really positive. Love you, everyone. Have a goodie. One international story that was truly globally important broke early in the new year and had an impact here on the other side of the world. We've killed a figure who's incredibly important and popular in Iran and incredibly important uh, and influential throughout the region. This is someone who is not only well-known in Iran, but Iraq, Lebanon, Yemen, throughout the region. It's an incredibly consequential figure who has been, I think, openly assassinated. It is an incredibly reckless uh, step that the Trump administration has taken. That was Hillary Mann Leverett, a former U.S. National Security Council director, talking to Al Jazeera there on the 3rd of January about Iranian military commander Qasem Soleimani being taken out in a U.S. drone strike. As she said there, that rocked the entire Middle East, peaking fears of war with Iran and alarming the U.S.'s allies in Europe as well. And soon after that, News Hub's Lloyd Burr was live from London telling News Hub at Six viewers this. Move over Brexit because there's a new crisis in town. It's called Megxit. But that new crisis was not the Middle East one. It was a Meghan Markle one, sparked by the announcement that she and Prince Harry wanted out of the royal family and the kingdom as well. They're actually quitting Britain as well. Yeah, they certainly are, Tom. This, as they say, is the rift that keeps on giving. And instead of singing the national anthem, Brits over here are instead singing a new tune that goes, Oh, Canada. Well, of course, they weren't actually singing either tune, but this was clearly significant news for the UK. It was not as serious as the prospect of an actual war in the Middle East, though. Or was it? It's been dubbed Megxit and the War of the Windsors. So, a new crisis for the Royal Institution and a new War of the Windsors. And online, News Hub also reckoned this was war in this headline. Shock decision, a declaration of war, says report. That report came from a New Zealand reporter, Dan Wotton, now an executive director at Rupert Murdoch's tabloid The Sun. Formerly, he was a showbiz writer at Murdoch's paper that was sacrificed after the phone hacking scandal in 2011, The News of the World. Dan Wotton's scoop quoted an unnamed senior source as saying this. It breaks all protocol. This is a declaration of war on the family. But why so warlike? Well, because the couple didn't tell the palace bigwigs that their big announcement was coming. And Dan Wooten gleefully reported that the couple had rushed that statement out because they'd found out the sun was going to break the story. And coincidentally, Dan Wooten was on holiday here in New Zealand at the time, where he told One News this at Wellington Airport. There is a civil war within the royal family at the moment. A lot of people haven't wanted to believe that for a long time. But this story today has blown it wide open. So Harry and Meghan released the statement after I had broken the story just a few hours beforehand in the sun. The Queen wasn't aware of the statement. I'm told that she is deeply upset. Prince Charles and Prince William didn't know about the statement. And I'm told they are incandescent with rage. So there is absolutely a civil war over this decision and there has been for some time to be honest. 
And Dan Wharton seemed pretty pleased to be able to play a part in this new English civil war. Dan Wharton later told UK media trade journal Press Gazette... I would say the fact we'd given them 10 days' notice is actually a very lengthy time. People are lucky to get 10 hours these days with how quickly news breaks. Dan Wharton said the royal couple were professional victims who he said wanted to feel like they are under attack from the British press when a lot of the time they actually haven't been. And this was a point he also hammered home in a British documentary which was rushed on air by TVNZ1 on Wednesday. Hasn't the newspaper industry, and in particular the tabloids, of which you are an executive editor of the biggest selling one, aren't you to blame for it all going wrong? I think that is patently ridiculous. And I think even if you asked Meghan and Harry, they would say that the press is only one factor in their anger about the UK. But I'm sorry, I will stand by everything that The Sun has done about Harry and Meghan. They are a public couple, they are partly funded by us, and they deserve proper scrutiny. But Dan Wharton seemed to have much more sympathy for the couple's troubles, and Meghan Markle's in particular, when he appeared on TV3 during another trip home two years ago. It is a very, very, very difficult situation for Meghan to deal with. Obviously, she's just in that family, and there's huge sympathy and support for Meghan in the UK. But Dan Wharton is far from the only one in the UK's media to turn on the royal couple in recent times, and Meghan Markle especially. Among the tsunami of hostile press comment about her was this headline in another Murdoch paper, the UK's Sunday Times, back in 2018. Fly away, Meghan. Your creepy entourage and prince entitled are really irritating. Now that was on a column by journalist Camilla Long, who said it was time for her to leave and take Prince Pussy whipped with her. But the headline on her column just last week was this. Meghan snubbed the Queen and country, and now she's off with her prince. Charming. And under that, Camilla Long said this. They said they'd come to this decision over the last few years. But Meghan's only been here three seconds. She only met him a minute ago, and the joyful, gushing wedding was yesterday. Now that is spectacularly bad writing. No one could marry anyone yesterday whom they met only a minute ago, having arrived a mere three seconds earlier. And as Vice UK reporter Paulie Doyle pointed out, the entire piece could be summed up in just one line anyway. How dare you leave, as I repeatedly told you to. Here on News Talk ZB and in the New Zealand Herald, Camilla Long was echoed by Kate Hawksby, who has written and broadcast plenty of condemnations of Meghan Markle in the Herald and on ZB in recent months. On her first early edition show for 2020 last Monday, there was more. As much as I would have loved to come on here first day back and not say I told you so, I have to say, I said at the time, into much criticism and hate mail, I might add, that I didn't trust Meghan Markle that I thought she had an agenda, that she seemed about ambition and fame and not in it for the right reasons. She was certainly no Kate Middleton 2.0. Now, much of the commentary in the UK and here has compared Meghan Markle, who's of mixed race, unfavourably with the Duchess of Cambridge. On scoop.co.nz, Gordon Campbell pointed out that BuzzFeed had found more than 20 examples of Kate Middleton being lavishly praised by the press, while Meghan Markle was seriously denigrated for exactly the same things, including eating avocados to visiting the Queen. Now, critics have claimed that all this is snobbery and even possibly racism, but The Sun defended its coverage in an editorial this week saying it was sick of woke morons crying racism over press criticism. And that was the line that the paper's Kiwi-born executive editor Dan Wooten took in that ITV documentary that was on TVNZ1 last Wednesday night. 
Go and look back at that wedding day. We celebrated as a country. People were delighted. Go and read the Sun editorials from those days. We thought that Meghan was a brilliant breath of fresh air and she was going to bring change to the monarchy. We celebrated. I'm sorry, Chris, if you were actually saying that you can no longer criticise someone who happens to be mixed race, then we've got real problems coming in this country. The criticism of Meghan is nothing to do with her race. It's to do with the fact that she has been incredibly hypocritical with political views that she has preached as a member of the royal family, by the way. This is a big deal. You know, members of the royal family are not meant to openly share their politics. The royal family and politics have, of course, been closely intertwined throughout their history. In the UK's Guardian newspaper, long-serving former editor Alan Rusbridger pointed out another factor in the press hostility. Prince Harry is currently pursuing phone hacking claims against the publishers of the UK's two biggest tabloids, The Sun and The Daily Mirror, and he's also suing the publisher-associated newspapers over the publication of a private letter. So therefore... There is, to any reasonable eyes, a glaring conflict of interest that, for the most part, goes undeclared. There are quite a lot of worried newspaper executives and former editors who have absolutely zero interest in treating the couple kindly or even-handedly. And it's the same here, though it's not big money at stake, it's online engagement. Last week, local New York Times reporter Charlotte Graham McClay said she was startled to get five push notifications about the drama on her phone in one morning from the Herald. The sheer obsessive intensity of these alerts, she said, was out of kilter with the likely lack of interest in their content. But last June... Long before the current crisis, Media Watch's Jeremy Rose reported it was rare for the Herald website not to have a Meghan Markle story on its homepage on any given day. The Herald, he found, had run 63 stories about her on its website in the previous month. Last Monday, Prince Harry gave a speech in which he mentioned the big decision he and his wife had made, prompting this from Lloyd Burr on News Hub at 6. What I find interesting about this whole saga is that they're stepping back from the royal family because they don't want to be in the media spotlight. They don't want to be uh, on the front pages. And yet every time they open their mouths, do what Harry did overnight and give these speeches, they are straight back on the front page, straight back into leading those bulletins. Now there, Lloyd Burr spoke as if the prince himself was setting the running order of the bulletins and writing the front page headlines rather than other journalists and editors. And as if to prove this point, Kate Hawksby the next day on News Talk ZB kicked off her show like this. I'm sure he was delighted he could stand in front of an adoring crowd and give his side of the story, and I think that's what we'll see from both of them now for the coming months. And therein lies the issue. I don't know that it's that beneficial to keep banging on about how much you hate the press, to keep trying to fly your own flag and put your own story across. I'm not sure it's a fruitful and solid long-term approach. There is a lot to be said for quiet distinction and aloofness. After that, she claimed that Harry's latest speech had just made things worse, and she wound up with this warning. The other thing he said was that he was looking for a more peaceful life. And if he thinks this is his way of getting it, he's dreaming. He may find peace away from the palace, yes, but they have just opened the floodgates for more media scrutiny than ever before. Watch this space. And that's a self-fulfilling media prophecy, if ever there was one, from Kate Hawksby. Now that Prince Harry speech this week, incidentally, was for a charity event supporting poor children in southern Africa. Had the prince cancelled it, or turned up and spoken and not talk about his big decision, he would have been condemned in the media for dodging the issue, or letting down the charity, or both. Either way, it would have made more headlines and prompted more media condemnation. 
It's too early to tell whether the Sussexes' big move will work out as they'd hoped or not, but at least they've tried to break a cycle in a way that the media never would. As we heard earlier on Media Watch today, the news media get a fair amount of news these days out of the stuff that people post on social media platforms. But news media outfits get their own bits of content in front of far more eyeballs by posting them on those same platforms. Readers can share those stories with others who would probably never see them otherwise, and they can all post their own comments on whatever the story happens to be. But people can also post just about any response they like, and the comment sections on media organisations' Facebook pages these days are often a maelstrom of abuse, misinformation, and sometimes even allegations which could worry their legal staff. Even the most attentive social media teams can struggle to deal with the volume of potentially offensive content that gets posted on their social media pages. Hayden Donnell now looks at a recent move made by the Herald to clean up the worst stuff on its Facebook page. When Vera Elves posted a story about the pop singer Lizzo to the Herald's Facebook page last week, she faced an all too familiar response. Insulting comments reigned in. Some mocked the singer's weight. Others came from people proudly asserting they didn't know who she was. Instead of moderating as usual, Elves took a different route. She wrote a response to the commenters, posted it from the Herald's official account, and pinned it to the top of the thread. It read, Hey folks, just a couple of housekeeping rules. One, body shaming is not okay. All comments criticising anyone for their appearance will be deleted. Two, Lizzo is awesome. Bonus side note, never having heard of Lizzo does not make anyone an intellectual. A lack of pop culture knowledge is not a moral high ground. The response went viral after it was screenshotted and posted on Twitter. The Herald followed up by posting another admonishment for its worst commenters this week, this time on a story about Shireen Nath. I asked Mitchell Powell, who works with Elves on the Herald's social media team, about the thinking behind this preemptive moderation method and if we can expect to see more of it. We've got a responsibility to our audience to you know, provide a, a safe place where they can sort of engage with each other and, and interact. So, yeah, we, we watch it very closely, and we've got a lot of different, I suppose, strategies and processes, but also little tools that we use to um, try and ensure that that happens. But I guess it's, it's getting the threshold right, right, where you are ensuring that people can have their say. What kinds of things are actually banned or blocked? Yeah, so we have uh, house rules that uh, are readily available on our on our Facebook page so that people know what they're working with, and if course you know the argument of free speech comes into it i mean example. yeah you can insult political parties but it's is it passing that threshold of defamation that yes kind of? exactly um and you know a political party is one thing but the leader of that party or someone specifically in it is a little bit different so uh the audience making sure that they don't break the law uh, is quite important so <laughs> sometimes we are trying to do them a favor so we're talking about something a little bit interesting and different you guys did Last week, which was a story that you posted about the pop singer Lizzo and she visited Piha Beach and posted a photo of herself and you guys did a, just a knock-off story about that. Yeah, she uploaded some photos of herself at the beach, you know, um, posing on the beach in a bikini and a lot of our audience took that as an opportunity to say some uh, unfortunate things and a lot of things that did violate our community house rules. That post was getting to a point where we couldn't, passively moderate it so where our filters keywords that we have that if you comment those your comment is automatically hidden 
uh, weren't picking up. Uh, we couldn't keep up with deleting comments or hiding comments. So a strategy that we've been employing for a little while, um, and we saw it extensively throughout the Grace Mullane case, but this is a sort of a slightly different example, was to leave a comment at the top of the post. Because Facebook is a platform where a massive part of our audience get their news, right? So we have, we've got a responsibility to deliver them that news. Uh, but when things get out of control and we can't maintain it, we have to take them down. So a compromise, we left a comment at the top that just sort of reminded people what they could say, what they couldn't say. The Herald doesn't speak often in the comments, uh, and we don't, we don't like to. We like our audience to be able to control the dialogue. But I think that comment, the way it was worded, really resonated with our audience. The question is, did it actually work? Does posting these sort of pinned comments actually shape the debate in such a way that it reduces the moderation load that you guys have? Commenting is uh, often a great way to slow some of those comments down. You know, it, it, it just gets people to stop and think for a second about, not, not everyone, but a lot of people, it sort of gets them to stop and think. But that strategy isn't right for, for every example. Like we, had, we had a couple this morning where we came close to doing the same thing. Should we delete them? You know, what should we do? And, and then we just kept on slogging away, clicking, refreshing and deleting comments. But yeah, it's not always the right strategy, but it is something we want to employ more if it can you know, create that positive en- environment for our audience. Yeah, so you guys are pretty pleased by the response. Is that, did that encourage you to sort of use this tactic a little bit more? It all just comes back down to the bottom line of making sure that our social platforms are a safe environment for our readers. And if using the strategy is going to help, then we will absolutely uh, continue to do it. Um, as we've you know, found out, the Grace Mullane trial mm. Uh, was a really, really big ongoing saga for us where that was used widely. There was real legal consequences to breaching suppression orders for you guys. Yeah. And there's been cases around the world where media organisations have been held responsible for what people have posted outside the organisation in the comments of their Facebook pages and other social media. I'm not sure whether the, the law in New Zealand is set on that, but in Australia it is. You know, News Corp's been held accountable for the comments that its users post on their Facebook. I mean, is that something that you really uh, struggle with and uh, sort of weighs on your social media team? Um, on the Grace Mullane trial, it, it really did. That was such an extreme case, you know, because half of New Zealand did know the accused's, uh, well, accused at that time, did know his name. So not only were they just trying to expose him in our comments, but they were taking links from stories from overseas media where he'd been named and trying to paste it in the comments that got extremely creative and those automatic filters that we took, talked about uh, a lot of different creative ways where, where people were trying to find mm. loopholes to get through. But getting back to what you were saying about uh, News Corp and sort of legal ramifications for, uh, for media organisations on platform, it, that example is definitely something that, that's on our mind. Um, I mean... Facebook makes billions of dollars every year from media organisations publishing content uh, on their platforms. Uh, And we believe they have the systems to be able to moderate their content better. So it would be fantastic if we could see them use it. But at the same time, we've got really hard and fast systems in place that we believe will keep us safe from something like that. And I think the key point here 
And the key issue in, in that particular case with News Corp is that if you know something's there, you have to act and you have a responsibility to act, which I think is was the key defining feature of that one. Yeah, absolutely. But then it's just how timely you can act. How, yes. uh, because there's such an array of comments, it's very difficult, as you've said. Yep. What can Facebook actually do to make this easier for you? Probably isn't my place to, to sort of stand here and tell Facebook what they need to, need to do, but I believe that there is more that can be done. And I think New Zealand media as a collective does have an opportunity to sort of stand up and say, you know, that, that this isn't good enough. Uh, and, you know, if you look at things like artificial intelligence, right, that's not new tech anymore. That's technology that we're seeing ingrained in sort of all uh, different parts of our life. I think that there is definitely a tool that can be built to make this a lot easier for not just publishers, but just people on their on their own personal feeds. As a platform, they can do a better job for everyone, not necessarily just for media. At the moment, the process of moderating content is so unbelievably manual and uh, and labour intensive. The balance can shift on the responsibility. I don't think it is. It should be where it is at the moment. That was Mitchell Powell, social media producer for the New Zealand Herald's publisher NZME, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell about his efforts to preempt the worst kind of readers' responses, which often spoil the social media feeds of even the most respectable media organisations. Well, that's all from the Media Watch team for this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.